pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm going to continue to the book of Matthew. And the question we're going to be asking this morning is this. Who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? Before we get started, let's pray together again. Father, thank you for this hallowed moment. You are the prize worth fighting for, Lord. Life is hard. It's not easy. It's a struggle, Lord, but there is such a great reward that one day we will see you face to face. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so, Lord, help us to not give up. Help us pray. Pray, pray, cast ourselves on your mercy every day to press on to the upward call of Christ Jesus. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. To have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. You know, when certain points in time and in every every time every generation certain people gain prominence in a location a place a society and oftentimes these figures are controversial one figure that comes to mind in recent history is a man named Donald Trump and um some there's a spectrum from utter hatred to utter adoration and then there's everywhere in between how people feel about him and how somebody feels about a controversial figure can tell you a lot about where that, where that person stands on various issues. We kind of take Jesus for granted and forget that Jesus was an extremely controversial figure. People felt all over the board about Jesus Christ. But I want to say you can tell a lot about a person by how they feel about Jesus Christ. Probably, undoubtedly, if the Bible is true, the most important question about a person is how they answer, uh, most most important thing about a person is how they answer this question, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say that he is? We'll talk about an answer this morning from Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. If you have a Bible and you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. It says, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys 
of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Word of God. You may be seated. I want to talk about this passage under two headings this morning. Number one, the blessedness of the confession of Christ. The blessedness of the confession of Christ. And number two, the building of the church of Christ. The building of the church of Christ. First, the blessedness of the confession of Christ. So, scholars who read and study Matthew's gospel see here that uh, this forms, and, and really of most, of, really of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that their gospels tend to build up to this climactic point in the gospel, in the gospel narratives. So, up to this point in the story of Matthew. Jesus has been teaching, uh, has, by Jesus, by his teaching and miracles, has shown who he is for those with eyes to see. But he has, he has remained a divisive and controversial figure, and many people didn't know what to think about him. And the religious establishment had already essentially rendered judgment upon him concerning who they thought he was. They uh, thought of him as demonic, Sabbath-breaking, a demonic, Sabbath-breaking false teacher. Even at one point, John the Baptist had his doubts and his questions concerning Jesus. The crowds loved his miracles, especially the fact that he fed them. But there was even a certain fickleness to the crowds. And then even his disciples, his own disciples up to this point, were very cloudy and murky concerning their understanding of who Jesus actually was. And so it's not surprising at this point in his ministry, after yet another confrontation with the religious leaders that we talked about last time that Jesus is departing. So we see in the book of Matthew this rising tension between Jesus and the religious establishment. And so after this most recent confrontation, he withdraws away because it's not yet his time. He withdraws away into the, to, into the, the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is in the far north of the country. Beautiful country. Okay? And he, he goes and he asks his disciples this question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And so he asks them this question, but I think he's really interested more in what, who they think that he is. But still, he asks, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And so you remember, you read the, the, the Gospels before, that the Son of, son of Man is Jesus' most, most of his favorite self-reference, how he identified himself. And I believe that that was intentional because we learn from this question that that title is ambiguous. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then they give all different kinds of opinions. So that means that to the people in general, they didn't know who the Son of Man was. It was an ambiguous title. So I think Jesus chose that self-reference because it, because it was ambiguous, because he then had the ability to Get, take that title and fill it with his own meaning rather than taking a title like the Christ, for example, where the people already had their predefined expectations. And so then he would be, he would be working upstream. He'd be, have to fight against the, the current to redefine a term that they already thought they knew what it meant. So he, instead of doing that, he chose an, a term that was already kind of ambiguous because that's what people like to do. People like to 
think they understand something, slap a label on it, and then don't have to think about that anymore. I already know what it is because I've labeled it. Okay, that's what people like to do today. So Jesus intentionally chose an ambiguous label so that people wouldn't assume they knew what the Christ was because many of them thought they did. And obviously Jesus shattered every one of their expectations of what the Christ was supposed to be. So who were people saying that he was? Some people said that he was John the Baptist. Others, Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. We know of at least one person for sure who thought that Jesus was John the Baptist, and that was Herod, right? And we talked about that, 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 that Herod, when he heard about Jesus' ministry, presumed it was John the Baptist risen from the dead, a sign of his a conscience that still hounded him for his cowardice because he had, his, he had John the Baptist's head delivered on a platter at the request of this girl, okay? Some say that he was Elijah, and you know from when we talked about John the Baptist before, that the prophet Malachi, the very last Old Testament prophet, the last book in the Old Testament before you get to the book of Matthew, at the very end of his book in Malachi chapter 4, he said that Elijah would come back, that Elijah would return and prepare uh, the way for the Lord before the day of the Lord. Uh, and so some people thought that Jesus was uh, Elijah. And we know that Jesus, in his confrontations with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, had a boldness that... Elijah was known for, right? Elijah was known for his, his boldness. But we know that it was, G, it was John the Baptist, not Jesus, who fulfills that prophetic ministry of Elijah. Jesus wasn't the one who came to prepare the way for someone else. Jesus was the one who, whose way was prepared. John, John the Baptist is Elijah who made straight the paths of the Lord. Jesus is the Lord who has come. One whom John the Baptist said, I am not, who Jesus said was the greatest man ever born of woman. And he said, I am not worthy to loosen the strap of his sandal. That was John the Baptist. Jesus was not Elijah. Others say, said that the son of man was Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Now that's fascinating. Jeremiah stood, Jeremiah also stood against the religious establishment of his day. And, and also, like Jesus, they didn't listen to him. And, and Jeremiah foretold that because of their sin and rebellion and the hard-heartedness of Israel, which was a message that they didn't like to hear, that God was going to judge them and destroy them. And instead of repenting, they continued to harden their heart, and that's exactly what happened. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came in 586 B.C. and raised Jerusalem to the ground. And interestingly, Jesus preached against the religious establishment and Jesus also proclaimed the destruction of Jerusalem. We're going to talk about that in, well, it'll probably be a while, but we're going to talk about that when we get to Matthew 24, we're in chapter 16 now. Jesus preached that Jerusalem would be destroyed, which happened, by the way, 40 years after he died and rose again. Jerusalem was raised to the ground by the Romans, destroyed. Okay, Jesus said that was going to happen. So he was like, and so Jesus certainly stood in the in the line of the Old Testament prophets. So none of these suggestions are actually surprising concerning Jesus. However, they they all reveal a general lack of spiritual awareness because they missed they they still missed who Jesus was, and that is that he wasn't John the Baptist. He was somebody greater than John the Baptist. 
As we said, one whom John was not worthy to loosen the strap of his sandals. He was not Elijah. He was greater than Elijah. Because he himself got on the altar and was consumed by the fire from heaven, the wrath of God. Which on that altar he defeated not merely the prophets of Baal, but the powers and principalities and spiritual forces over this present darkness. He was not Jeremiah. He was greater than Jeremiah because he brought in the new covenant that Jeremiah saw from afar in Jeremiah chapter 31. And he would judge Jerusalem even more severely than Nebuchadnezzar because, Jesus said, they did not know the day of their visitation. Hearing their reply, he turns next to what I believe is he's more interested in, and that is, who does his disciples say that he is? And Simon, in his moment of great triumph, says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you see, this is so important. You see, Jesus, uh, or Matthew, has identified Jesus as the Christ many times thus far in the book of Matthew, okay? Especially in the beginning of the gospel. Christ is used four times um, in, uh, I'm sorry, is used 16 times in the book of Matthew. And one-fourth of those times, four out of the 16, is in chapter 1. So Matthew has let us know at the very beginning of his gospel what the point, right? When someone writes a book, they write it for a point, right? They're trying to communicate something, right? Matthew wrote this book, and he refers to Jesus as Christ four times in chapter 1 because he's telling the reader, I'm about to tell you who this man is, okay? And then throughout the remainder of the story, you're supposed to be what? You're supposed to be seeing how the life and ministry of Jesus confirms what Matthew told you in the beginning, That he is, in fact, the Christ. And so the story really climaxes with this question that Jesus puts to Peter because uh, uh, this is the first and I think maybe the only time in the Gospel of Matthew where the word Christ is put on the lips of another person as a declaration of who Jesus is. And so, it, so we get to the middle of the book, of the book of Matthew, and we finally see that the, that the clear revelation of who Jesus is has finally been given to somebody, and that person is Peter. He finally sees that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, this is remarkable. Christ is roughly is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew term Messiah, which means anointed one. Okay, that's, it's important because there were a class of people who were anointed in the Old Testament, namely priests and kings. Okay? The, for the priests, the anointing meant that they were set apart and anointed by God for the holy work of representing the people before God. Okay? They represented the people before God and God before the people. And, and so that was the anointing of the priest, and the kings was slightly different. The, most of the time it was the prophets, okay, who would anoint the priests, and, and prophets were anointed too. But, but the prophets would anoint the kings, excuse me. The prophets would anoint the kings because the anointing of the king was basically say, was God saying, this is who I choose to be king. I just read in my Bible reading this morning. The prophet Samuel anointed Saul to be king. 
and David. Okay? What, what, what was the point of that? Because Israel, it wasn't supposed to be like, you know, in most, in most of the history, the kings were just was linear descent, uh, descent from the family line. But in Israel, it was actually was supposed to be different. God chose the king of Israel. God chose Saul. God chose David. And the anointing was the, uh, the sign of God's choice that the kingship is a divine gift. It's a divine choice where God has endowed the king with his authority to be his representative. That's why the anointing was so significant, which is why King David actually refused to kill Saul, even though he had opportunity to do so. If a, if a, if a probably a clinically insane guy was trying to kill you for years, and you had an opportunity to take him out, you'd probably take it. But... David didn't. Why? Because he was the anointed of God, and he would not lay his hand against God's anointed. Why? Because he said, that's God's business. That's not my business. And God did take him out at the appropriate time because he rejected his, the, the authority that God gave him as his king. He broke it. He despised it. So, the, so there's a great significance in the anointing, but it, it takes on much more significance than that. In the prophets, we just read, I read that passage earlier on purpose. In the prophets, the prophets take up this mantle of anointing, but they begin to prophesy of this person, this this Messiah, this Christ, this Davidic figure, this servant of the Lord, this person who's going to take an unusual significance, who's going to be anointed by God himself to fulfill an unusual and ultimate role for the nation of Israel and for the world in general. We read one of those passages this morning earlier. There's another one in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. This is what it says. Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus quotes this passage and says that it's about me. Okay, Isaiah 61, 1. The Spirit of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, Messiah, anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me up to he, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And then it goes on to speak about the restoration of God's people through the anointed one, so that there in verse 11, Isaiah 61, 11, he says, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. And so this, this Messiah, this messianic figure was not just going to be an ordinary person. He was going to be the anointed one of God, not just anointed with water. Jesus says, John baptized you with water. I'm the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. When he was baptized, John said, I saw, I saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove. You see... Old Testament prophets would anoint the kings in, in Old Testament Israel. God himself anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit. Amen. When the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Christ was the anointed one. 
He was to be the anointed one, divinely, the divinely chosen agent to come and save God's people, restore them, lift them up, bring righteousness and praise of the Lord throughout all the earth. And we've seen that at least a, a good number of Jews viewed the Messiah's role in purely political terms. Deliver them from tyranny and oppression. Lift up the Jewish nation as the greatest nation in all the earth and so on. And most of the Jews missed it. And in fact, as far as we know, some of the disciples still kind of thought along those terms. After Jesus ascended into, uh, arose from the dead, but before he ascended into heaven, the disciples come to him and ask him, Lord, will you at, or, or will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus just says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that have been appointed by my Father. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so Peter here, the first of all the people, finally gets it. And Peter's confession is climactic. They have finally discerned who Jesus really is. So Jesus is the Christ, and that's what Matthew has been wanting to show us the whole time. And Jesus puts this question to Peter, and Peter answers correctly. But of course, Matthew is writing this story because as Jesus puts the question to Peter, Matthew is putting the question to you. Peter says Jesus is the Christ. Who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? How does Jesus respond to Peter's confession? He says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. How has Peter come to know this most important truth. It's incredibly simple. God revealed it to him. God revealed it to him. How could so many people see the same Jesus that Peter saw and not get it? Because they're hard-hearted. Because it because God because God has to reveal it to you. These things, these spiritual realities are not discerned by sheer intellect but by spiritual sensitivity and awareness that is itself a gift from God. God has to show it to you. And we know, that too. we know that's true. That's why some of you have beat your head against the wall not understanding why somebody that you love hasn't believed in Jesus yet. It's because God's got to show it to them. That's why... In addition to sharing the gospel with somebody, the most important thing you can do is get on your face in your closet and say, God, show them who Jesus is. Let me tell you something. When you start praying that, God may mess them up just like he messed you up. Because God has a way of showing people stuff. But let me tell you something. You got to learn this. If you miss this, you miss the most important thing that there is. God revealed it to him. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 2.7. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. 
These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except, thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Which is why, which is why the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Because it's not just, it's not, it's, the gospel is power. It's not just like it's an option. The gospel is power. The gospel affects change in people's hearts. It's not just a, oh, maybe, maybe. It is that the gospel is a power that has the power to change hearts. Because when God reveals it to you, your life is changed. That's why we preach the gospel. Because we can look at a person who's been so hard for so long, and humanly speaking, we can think, there's no way that can be saved. But if God gets a hold of them, they, it doesn't matter what they think. It doesn't matter what they feel. It doesn't matter how long they've been in sin. God can save them. And I know that because he saved me. And you. Who do you say? he is the blessedness of the confession of christ number two the building of the church of christ i tell you you're peter and on this rock i will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it i will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven whenever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven whenever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So we move on to Jesus's rest of Jesus's response to Peter's confession. This is a very difficult passage to untangle. Peter he tells Peter, "You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church." What does that mean? There's lots of different interpretations of that passage. I I studied. I did the best I could. I'll tell you my interpretation. This verse makes Protestants nervous because Catholics have used it to argue that, that Peter was the first pope. And it's one of the verses they use to uh, argue for their line of papal succession that, that the present-day pope, Francis, sits on the seat of Peter and so on. And that the, that the keys to the kingdom basically is the Catholic Church's authority to basically say who is and isn't saved and so many Protestants, I think, in overreaction probably to the Catholic claims have had different arguments about what this verse means, that, that when, he, when Jesus says, this rock I will build my church, that he's, some will say that they're not, he's not referring to Peter but to Peter's confession. And that, that may be true, that maybe, it's, maybe he's not referring to Peter but Peter's confession, on this rock I will build my church. That, that may be true, but... I think probably the best way to take it is to just say that Jesus is talking about Peter there, but there's, no, there's, no, there's nothing in the passage about papal succession, right? It's just, he's, just saying, he's just saying that what? That Peter will play a foundational role in the early church, which he obviously did. And in fact, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says this. He says, So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so there's a clear understanding that the apostles and the prophets were the, laid the foundation of the early church. And in some sense, were the foundation of the early church. Christ being the cornerstone. And so it just uses different imagery there. But you have Christ who's under everything. And then you have the apostles and prophets who were the, uh, the ones who Jesus Christ uh, gave a unique authority in the early church to lay the foundation of the church, which is what Peter and Paul and the other apostles did, okay? And what I think is really worth focusing on is the un- unchallengeable claim that Jesus made. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So even this passage is debated about what exactly it means. Um, there's lots of things I could say and, and have said. My... My most recent study is to take it this way. That is that the gates of hell. So hell there, the word hell in Greek there is not the same. There's two different words translated hell in the New Testament. Greek, Two different Greek words. One is Hades, which you've heard before, and one is Gehenna. Gehenna is where we typically think of as the place of eternal punishment. But Hades was a, is, was a slightly different place. The Greek word in this passage is actually Hades. It's not Gehenna. Hades was more in line with the Old Testament term Sheol, which was less a place of punishment and more of a place of the holding place of the dead. The holding place of the dead. And so what Jesus is probably saying here is that the gates of of Hades was an idiom or just an expression which meant death. All that to say, what Jesus is probably saying here is that the church of Jesus Christ cannot die. I will build my church, and the, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church will not die. Do you know how many, you know how many m- movements have arisen and died in human history? Too many to count. You know that Jesus Christ was an obscure Jewish carpenter who had no money? And, not, and had very little cultural clout. He wasn't a cultural or societal leader. You realize that he only lived to be in his mid-30s? And he only had a public ministry that lasted three years? And all that happened 2,000 years ago? And did you know that today... There are over a billion people who say Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Because I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus came died, rose, and ascended into heaven. He's coming back. We won't have to worry. Remember remember what Jesus said one time? He said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He will. Not because we did it, but because he did it.
I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Churches may die, but the church, capital C, can never die. Why? Because the job of building the church is not ultimately mine. It's not ultimately yours. It's Jesus Christ. It's his job to build his church. That's why, that's the only reason, that's the only reason why me or you or any pastor or anybody doesn't get discouraged. Because what? Life is hard. Ministry is hard. But guess what? I don't build the church. Jesus Christ builds the church. We are fighting a battle. We march behind an unconquerable general. We have a gospel that can convert the most hardened sinner. We have a savior for whom no sin is so great that he cannot forgive. We have a risen Lord that though we die, yet shall we live. So what does it mean for us, church? This is what it means. It means we can step out in faith. It means we can be bold. It means we can be courageous. It means we don't have to be timid. It means we don't have to just go on about as life as usual, but we can live bold lives of faith for Jesus Christ, regardless of what happens. Why? Because the gates of hell can't prevail against the church. We can work hard and rest easy, knowing that it is Christ and not us that will build his church. And then he says to Peter, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. What you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I didn't leave myself much time for this on purpose because hardly anybody knows what this verse actually means. And if you read about it, it, it uses a very unusual Greek construction that scholars argue about what it could even possibly mean. And there's no way I could even get into that. It's very confusing. But I think it means this. The same language is used in chapter 18, which we'll get to, concerning church discipline. And, of course, the keys to the kingdom is keys to the door, which obviously has to do with entrance and exit of the kingdom. And so I think simply what he is saying is this, is that the apostles and, by extension, the church, which we get to in Matthew 18, which talks about church discipline, Peter and the apostles, and then by extension to the church, is given the keys of the kingdom. Basically, the church, Jesus is delegating, delegating to the church his authority to the people of God, to the apostles, and then to the people of God to be able to render verdict or judgment on those who are and are not in the kingdom. Now, what I mean by that is not in the Catholic sense, I guess I'm picking on Catholics today. Sorry, y'all. But um, not in the Catholic sense that, that we actually think we, we presume to be able to pronounce who is and isn't saved. But there is a sense in which, and that's what church discipline is about. As a Baptist, I, I can't tell someone they aren't saved. But as a Baptist, and as the, as the Bible clearly teaches church discipline, what we are saying when someone is living in unrepentant sin, and we confront them on that, and they continue in unrepentance, and they don't repent, we have to tell them, we have to say, well, you're no longer allowed to remain in fellowship with this church. We're not saying you're not saved, but we are saying you are giving us no evidence right now to believe that you are. And until you repent 
and turn from your sins, at which point we will freely and 100% welcome you back, gladly rejoice. The angels in heaven rejoice when one sheep who wanders comes back. No problem whatsoever. But as long as you continue in hardened, unrepentant sin, you're giving us no uh, evidence to suggest that you are saved. And so we have to render that verdict on you in the hope that it will lead you to repentance. And bring you back into the people of God. And the church does in fact have that responsibility to do that. The uh, James, the, the Lord's brother James said, Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering saves a soul from death and covers a multitude of sin. So as we close, Jesus Christ builds his church. And as he builds it, he entrusts a measure of his authority to the church to maintain a clear distinction between the church and the world. And, of course, that has to happen, right? Because if the church looks exactly like the world, then there is no church. If salt loses its savor, it's good for nothing. If a light is under a basket, there's no light. And so it's our responsibility to preserve the gospel in this way. So the blessedness of the confession of Christ, the building of the church of Christ. It's well within the realm of God's power this morning that as I was speaking human words, God spoke to somebody's heart this morning. So maybe you're in this room, maybe you're watching online, and for the first time God revealed to you that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God. I just want to tell you this morning, embrace what God has revealed to you. Repent, believe, trust in him with all your heart. Lay down your life and your burdens and your sins and he will cleanse you, cleanse you and wash you white as snow and fill you with his Holy Spirit and empower you to live the life you were made to live. There's nothing like it.